This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by M.L. Cohen, www.mojomove411.com. Cleveland, Ohio, October 2007. Essays in Radical Empiricism by William James, Chapter 4. How Two Minds Can Know One Thing. In the essay entitled, Does Consciousness Exist?, I have tried to show that when we call an experience conscious, that does not mean that it is suffused throughout with a particular modality of being, psychic being, as stained glass may be suffused with light, but rather that it stands in certain determinate relations to other portions of experience extraneous to itself. These form one peculiar context for it, while taken in another context of experiences, we class it as a fact in the physical world. This pen for example, is, in the first instance, a ball that, a datum, fact, phenomena, content, or whatever other neutral or ambiguous names you may prefer to apply. I call it in that article a, quote, pure experience. To get classed either as a physical pen or as someone's percept of a pen, it must assume a function, and that can only happen in a more complicated world. So far as in that world it is a stable feature, holds ink, marks paper, and obeys the guidance of a hand, it is a physical pen. That is what we mean by being physical in a pen. So far as it is instable, on the contrary, coming and going with the movements of my eyes, altering with what I call my fancy, continuous with subsequent experience of its having been, in the past tense, it is the percept of a pen in my mind. Those peculiarities are what we mean by being conscious in a pen. In section 6 of another essay, I tried to show that the same that, the same numerically identical pen of pure experience, can enter simultaneously into many conscious contexts or, in other words, be an object for many different minds. I admitted that I had not space to treat of certain possible objections in the article, but in the last essay I took some of the objections up. At the end of that essay, I said that still more formidable-sounding objections remained. So, to leave my pure experience theory in as strong a state as possible, I propose to consider those objections now. The objections I previously tried to dispose of were purely logical or dialectical. No one identical term, whether physical or psychical, it had been said, could be the subject of two relations at once. This thesis I sought to prove unfounded. The objections that now confront us arise from the nature supposed to inherit in psychic facts specifically. Whatever may be the case with physical objects, a fact of consciousness, it is alleged, and indeed very plausibly, cannot, without self-contradiction, be treated as a portion of two different minds, and for the following reasons. In the physical world, we make with impunity the assumption that one and the same material object can figure in an indefinitely large number of different processes at once. When, for instance, a sheet of rubber is pulled at its four corners, a unit of rubber in the middle of the sheet is affected by all four of the pulls. It transmits each of them, as if pulled in four different ways at once itself. So, an air particle or an ether particle compounds the different directions of movement imprinted on it without obliterating their several individualities. It delivers them distinct, on the contrary, at as many several receivers 
eye, ear, or whatnot, as may be tuned to that effect. The apparent paradox of a distinctness like this surviving in the midst of compounding is a thing which, I fancy, the analysis made by physicists have by this time sufficiently cleared up. But if, on the strength of these analogies, one should ask, quote, why, if two or more lines can run through one and the same geometrical point, or if two or more distinct processes of activity can run through one and the same physical thing, so that it simultaneously plays a role in each and every process, might not two or more streams of personal consciousness include one and the same unit of experience, so that it would simultaneously be a part of the experience of all the different minds? End quote. One would be checked by thinking of a certain peculiarity by which phenomena of consciousness differ from physical things. While physical things, namely, are supposed to be permanent and to have their states, a fact of consciousness exists but once and is a state. It's essa in centuri. It is only so far as it is felt. And it is unambiguously and unequivocally exactly what is felt. The hypothesis under consideration would, however, oblige it to be felt equivocally, felt now as part of my mind, and again at the same time not as part of my mind, but of yours, for my mind is not yours. And this would seem impossible without doubling it into two distinct things, or, in other words, without reverting to the ordinary dualistic philosophy of insulated minds each knowing its object representatively as a third thing. And that would be to give up the pure experience scheme altogether. Can we see, then, any way in which a unit of pure experience might enter into and figure in two diverse streams of consciousness without turning itself into the two units which, on our hypothesis, it must not be? 2. There is a way. And the first step towards it is to see more precisely how the unit enters into either one of the streams of consciousness alone. Just what, from being pure, does it becoming conscious once mean? It means, first, that new experiences have supervened, and, second, that they have borne a certain assignable relation to the unit supposed. Continue, if you please, to speak of the pure unit as the pen. So far as the pen's successors do but repeat the pen, or, being different from it, are energetically related to it, it and they will form a group of stably existing physical things. So far, however, as its successors differ from it in another well-determined way, the pen will figure in their context not as a physical, but as a mental fact. It will become a passing percept, my percept of that pen. What now is that decisive, well-determined way? In the chapter on the self and my principles of psychology, I explain the continuous identity of each personal consciousness as a name for the practical fact that new experiences come which look back on the old ones, find them warm, and greet them appropriate as mine. These operations mean, when analyzed empirically, several tolerably definite things, that is. 1. That the new experience has passed time for its content, and in that time, a pen that was. 2. That warmth was also about the pen, in the sense of a group of feelings. Interest aroused, attention turned, eyes employed, etc. They were closely connected with it, and that now recur, and ever more recur, with unbroken vividness, though from the pen of now, which may be only an image, 
all such vividness may have gone. 3. That these feelings are the nucleus of me. 4. That whatever once was associated with them was, at least for that one moment, mine, my implement if associated with hand feelings, my percept only, if only eye feelings and attention feelings were involved. The pen, realized in this retrospective way as my percept, thus figures as a fact of conscious life. But it does so only so far as appropriation has occurred. An appropriation is part of the content of a latter experience wholly additional to the original pure pen. That pen, virtually both objective and subjective, is at its own moment actually and intrinsically neither. It has to be looked back upon and wed in order to be classed in either distinctive way. But its use, so-called, is in the hands of the other experience, while it stands throughout the operation passive and unchanged. If this pass muster as an intelligible account of how an experience originally pure can enter into one consciousness, the next question is as how it might conceivably enter into two. 3. Obviously, no new kind of condition would have to be supplied. All that we should have to postulate would be a second subsequent experience, collateral and contemporary with the first subsequent one, in which a similar act of appropriation should occur. The two acts would interfere neither with one another nor with the originally pure pen. It would sleep undisturbed in its own past, no matter how many such successors went through their several appropriative acts. Each would know it as my percept. Each would class it as a conscious fact. Nor need their so classing it interfere in the least with their classing it at the same time as a physical pen. Since the classing in both cases depends upon the taking of it in one group or another of associates, if the superseding experience were of wide enough span, it could think the pen in both groups simultaneously and yet distinguish the two groups. It would then see the whole situation conformably to what we call, quote, the representative theory of cognition, end quote. And that is what we all spontaneously do. As a man philosophizing popularly, I believe that what I see myself writing with is double. I think it in its relation to physical nature and also in its relation to my personal life. I see that it is in my mind, but that it is also a physical pen. The paradox of the same experience figuring in two consciousnesses seems thus no paradox at all. To be conscious means not simply to be, but to report it, known, to have awareness of one's being added to that being, and this is just what happens when the appropriative experience supervenes. The pen experience, in its original immediacy, is not aware of itself, it simply is, and the second experience is required for what we call awareness of it to occur. Footnote. Shadworth Hodgson has laid great stress on the fact that the minimum of consciousness demands two subfeelings, of which the second retrospects the first. We live forward, but we understand backward, is a phrase of Kierkegaard's, which Hoftig quotes. End footnote. The difficulty of understanding what happens here is, therefore, not a logical difficulty. There is no contradiction involved. It is an ontological difficulty, rather. Experiences come on an enormous scale. 
and if we take them all together, they come in a chaos of incommensurable relations that we cannot straighten out. We have to abstract different groups of them and handle these separately if we are to talk of them at all. But how the experiences ever get themselves made, or why their characters and relations are just such as appear, we cannot begin to understand. Granting, however, that, by hook or crook, they can get themselves made, and can appear in the successions that I have so schematically described, then we have to confess that even although, as I began by quoting from the adversary, quote, a feeling only is as it is felt, end quote, there is still nothing absurd in the notion of its being felt in two different ways at once, as yours, namely, and as mine. It is indeed mine, only as it is felt as mine, and yours, only as it is felt as yours. But it is felt as neither by itself, but only when owned by our two several remembering experiences, just as one undivided estate is owned by several heirs. 4. One word now before I close about the corollaries of the views set forth. Since the acquisition of conscious quality on the part of an experience depends upon a context coming to it, it follows that the sum total of all experiences, having no context, cannot strictly be called conscious at all. It is that an absolute, a pure experience on an enormous scale, undifferentiated and undifferentiable into thought and thing. This, the post-Kantian idealists have always practically acknowledged by calling their doctrine an identitat philosophy. The question of the beesling of all things ought not, then, even to be asked. No more ought the question of its truth to be asked, for truth is a relation inside of the sum total, obtaining between thoughts and something else, and thoughts, if we have seen, can only be contextual things. In these respects, the pure experiences of our philosophy are in themselves considered so many little absolutes the philosophy of pure experience being only a more comminuted identitas philosophy. Meanwhile, a pure experience can be postulated with any amount whatever of span or field. If it exert the retrospective and appropriative function on any other piece of experience, the latter thereby enters into its own conscious stream. And in this operation, time intervals make no essential difference. After sleeping, my retrospection is as perfect as it is between two successive waking moments of my time. Accordingly, if, millions of years later, a similar retrospective experience should anyhow come to birth, my present thought would form a genuine portion of its long-span conscious life. Form a portion, I say, but not in the sense that the two things could be entitatively or substantively one. They cannot, for they are numerically discrete facts but only in the sense that the functions of my present thought, its knowledge, its purpose, its content, and consciousness, in short, being inherited, would be continued practically unchanged. Speculations like Fechner's, of an earth's soul, of wider spans of consciousness enveloping narrow ones throughout the cosmos, are therefore philosophically quite in order, provided they distinguish the functional from the entitative point of view and do not treat the minor consciousness under discussion as a kind of standing material of which the wider ones consist. 
End of chapter 4.